In our last session, looking at Revelation 17, we saw Babylon as standing for the pervasive system of immorality and apostasy that has infected mankind since the beginning of its time on earth. We understood her to be the insidious monster infecting our churches even today with false religion, false promises, false hope, all bringing only death to those who listen to her. Thus, in that context, Babylon is a driving force behind the depraved philosophies of a fallen world. In that role, she is very real and very powerful. We're not talking about just a vision. John's vision put into flesh for a moment in the form of a woman, something that has lived on this earth since the fall, if not before. It's very real and very strong and powerful. She is, as John MacArthur puts it, the symbol of all worldly resistance to God. But especially in chapter 17, she is the driving force behind false religion, apostasy, and all manner of corruption of religion. In a sense, based on her motives and behavior, one might say it's as if she's a female version of Satan. Now in chapter 18, which we'll be looking at today, we see it, and I get the whole thing in. Put a mark on your calendar. We see a different aspect of Babylon. Here she is associated not with religion, but with immoral commerce, trade, politics, and city life. David Guzik poses the rhetorical question, is this the same Babylon as is described in chapter 17? And I agree with his answer to this, that the two are, quote, intertwined, yet somehow distinct. After all, the Babylon in chapter 17 is utterly destroyed by Antichrist's coalition in verse 16. The Babylon in chapter 18 will be utterly destroyed by the seventh bowl of God's wrath in verses 17 and following in chapter 16, which occurs later than chapters 17 and 18. Stay with me. Also, we place chapter 17 during the first half of the tribulation, culminating in the destruction of Babylon, the false church, at the midpoint, three and a half years in. While in chapter 18, Babylon is destroyed just moments before Christ returns at the end of the tribulation. She might even be destroyed by his return. It's hard to say right now. Though separated by time and sphere of influence during the tribulation, it's clear that both these aspects of Babylon are ancient and enduring aspects of true evil at work on earth since the fall. 
They both share a common purpose, separating man from his maker. The most insidious of these two works in the realm of religion, the other in the realm of commerce and society. Even in chapter 17, verse 18, the woman is referred to as a city. And the great city is mentioned repeatedly in chapter 18. Not just by that name, but implied in the passages. It is a great city. It's a strong city with powerful influence in the world. For example, in verse 2, she's called, quote, a dwelling place for demons, end quote. And in verses 11 to 17, merchants weep and mourn because the city will no longer be purchasing their goods. The text seems to describe a city, city next to water, either the sea or a major river. For example, in verse 11, it mentions cargoes. And in verse 17, every shipmaster, passenger, and sailor, and those who make their living by the sea. Contrary to many scholars, I do not see the need to pinpoint this city on a map. Lots of trees died for people trying to decide, where is this Babylon? Is it Rome? Is it London? Is it Washington? Heaven forbid. We don't know where it is, and even the future name by which it will be called by those alive at the time. It may be Babylon. It may be something else. God calls it Babylon, and that's good enough for us. Wherever it is, it will be the commercial center for the beast's kingdom. There's good evidence for it to be in the site of the ancient Babylon by the Euphrates, maybe. Some say it will be the city from which Antichrist rules, the beast. Perhaps, again, I don't think it really matters that much. It will exist. That's enough. Let's read the first three verses of our passage. Revelation 18, verses 1 to 3. <clears throat> Why are they always all the way across the room? From the King James. Mm -hmm. And after these things, I saw another angel come down from heaven, having great power. And the earth was lightened with his glory. And he cried mightily with a strong voice, saying, Babylon the great is fallen, is fallen, and has become the habitation of devils, and the hold of every foul spirit, and a cage of every unclean and hateful bird. For all nations have drunk of the wine of the wrath of her fornication, and the kings of the earth have committed fornication with her, and the merchants of the earth are waxed rich through the abundance of her delicacies. We know we're in the King James when it says waxed. <laughs> Thank you. Became rich. Okay, verse 1. After these things I saw another angel coming down from heaven, having great authority, and the earth was illumined with his glory. 
Some like to make this angel out to be Christ himself, but the text says that he is another of the same kind as the previous angel. And Christ would not be referred to in this way in the Revelation. The angel has been given great authority. So he's a strong angel. And if we remember the time frame of this event, we can well understand that, quote, the earth would be illumined by his glory, end quote. Recall that just before this event, or perhaps synchronized with it, the fifth bowl of wrath darkened the entirety of the beast kingdom. That's the whole earth, the world, dark. This angel will indeed make a dramatic entrance. Everybody will see him. He'll stand right out. Verse 2. And he cried out with a mighty voice saying, Fallen, fallen is Babylon the great. She has become a dwelling place of demons and a prison for every unclean spirit and a prison of every unclean and hateful bird. Once again, we see how prophecy in God's word repeated, repeatedly employs the now, not yet method. We saw it in the message this morning. Announcing something apparently a fait accompli. It's done. Only to be actually fulfilled later. This angel says, Babylon is fallen. Verse 8 later says that she will be destroyed. And Babylon does not literally fall until chapter 16, verse 19. The angel's descent and announcement marks the beginning of the end. The second part of the verse paints an interesting, if not horrific, picture of the city. It has become a dwelling place of demons and a prison of every unclean spirit and every unclean and hateful bird. Let's first consider the words. It's a habitation. It's a dwelling place for evil angels. Daemonon. For foul spirits. A cartart, a cart, oh, I was going to say a carta. Anyway, it's a, I, <laughs> it's the next one I wasn't going to read. I thought I, now at home, I got that right. The second word is pneumatos. We can say that. It's a prison, a place where they are confined and guarded, guarded, fulake. It is a place as well for unclean and hateful birds, and I won't even try to pronounce that. I can find no explanation for the ESV, New NIV, and CSB adding at the end of the verse, quote, a haunt for every unclean and detestable beast. None of the other translations have that. Other than the obvious that they're working from a different manuscript. That's about the only that makes sense. The rest do not have it. I also could not discover any satisfactory explanation for the inclusion of birds. Birds? Some try to make this out to be euphemism for angels, evil angels. But I don't see that. Those are the details, but what do they mean? I can imagine either of two interpretations. This could be a more florid way of expressing the fact that this city is pervaded and controlled by demonic spirits. 
on the surface appearing to be a rather normal city of the times. But with this, it is not speaking of literal demons and angels walking the streets, but expressing a supernaturally possessed city overwhelmed by evil. We have quite a few of those around today. This is possible, but I, I favor a second, more literal interpretation. Look back with me to several passages that might illumine this statement. Turn please to chapter 9. Revelation 9. In verses 13 to 19, we have a description of what happens when the sixth trumpet is blown. Note especially verses 14 to 16. One saying to the sixth angel who had the trumpet, Release the four angels who are bound at the great river Euphrates. And the four angels who had been prepared for the hour and day and month and year, that is, they're ready to go. They've been anticipating this. They're just waiting for, for the release. And these are, not, these are not holy angels. These are evil angels. So that they would kill a third of mankind. Then... Out of the blue, it adds, the number of the armies of the horsemen was 200 million. As if horsemen had been mentioned earlier, but they weren't. I heard the number of them. That is, John saying, trust me, I heard the number, I got it right. Two million. 200 million, sorry, excuse me. Isla, why didn't you correct me on that? Note two things here. From somewhere around the river Euphrates, four angels who've been waiting for this moment are released. Released from what? Hmm. So they're in the vicinity at the river Euphrates and they're released. Then they call out an army of 200 million horsemen, apparently ready as well. As with the angels, this demonic army, army seemingly appears out of nowhere as if it too is already in place and chomping at the bit. Okay, now look back at verses 1 to 11. Here the fifth trumpet is blown, which brings forth a plague of locusts, in quotation marks. The stinging locusts are not numbered, but they are clearly in the millions, and led by the angel of the abyss, named Abaddon. Now finally turn to chapter 12. Look at verse 9. And the great dragon was thrown down, the serpent of old, who is called the devil and Satan, who deceives the whole world. He was thrown down to the earth, and his angels were thrown down with him. Okay, so when Satan was thrown down, there was a whole mess of angels thrown down with him. Far more than a handful, to be sure. So question. Where have all these demonic beings been as the tribulation has proceeded? Did they just disappear? Or did they remain? If the latter, where have they been garrisoned? If they're not out actually working, doing something, killing people, where are they garrisoned? I suggest they may have been imprisoned or caged 
in or in the vicinity of Babylon. It says it's a dwelling place for demons. These may very well be what are spoken of when verse 2 in chapter 18 records that Babylon has become a dwelling place of demons and a prison of every unclean spirit, etc. Some say, yeah, I already said that. So this place named Babylon is a veritable hellhole on earth. Verse 3. Last week I prefaced our look at chapter 17 with the following. One important reason for us to take the time for it is that in these chapters is revealed not just something future for this earth, but something happening right now. Let me be clear, I am not at all suggesting that this prophecy is being fulfilled in our midst, in our time. No, I'm not suggesting that, but declaring that the same abominable practices, evil philosophies, the very same demonic ideas and practices of which we read here are a part of our system today. That's, what I, that's how I prefaced chapter 17. Verse 3 makes clear that the same holds true for the description of Babylon, the city. For all the nations have drunk of the wine of the passion of her immorality, and the kings of the earth have committed acts of immorality with her, and the merchants of the earth have become rich by the wealth of her sensuality. That's the world we're living in right now. Verse 3 is a snapshot of our present-day culture, media, and politics, all saturated with a level of depravity represented here by Babylon, the great city. Need an illustration? Am I not convincing you? Here's one. I could spend the rest of our time giving examples, but here's just one. After watching a literally, literally satanic performance by two transitioned biological men during the recent Grammys Awards, country music singer John Rich tweeted, quote, the Grammys looked like hell last night. If God doesn't bring judgment on America, he'll have to apologize to Sodom and Gomorrah. That's right on. Our world and especially the United States today, there are many areas where the United States is even far more grossly liberal than Europe itself, which is a purely secular society. Our world has bent over backwards, and this plays right into this Babylon as a city of trade, of commerce, of, of politics. Today, huge corporations, national corporations, worldwide corporations are bending over backwards, are bending the knee to some of the most depraved cultural aspects in our world today. Abortion, LGBTQ whatever, and every day we see more whatevers. And reading this passage, reading chapter 18, all we have to do is turn to the headlines and we are seeing it played, being played out. 
Not fulfilled. Don't misunderstand me. Not fulfilled. It's just happening already. I'm saying that we are living in a culture, a society today that is very much like what is being described here in the first three verses. Now, verses four to five. I heard another voice from heaven saying, Come out of her, my people, so that you will not participate in her sins and receive of her plagues. For her sins have piled up as high as heaven, and God has remembered her iniquities. Some claim this now is the voice of God. But once again, the word another means another of the same kind. Alan, from alos, meaning one like in kind. So this is most probably the voice of another strong angel. One might rightly ask why there would be believers, my people, in such a place. There can be any number of reasons. Those who've been living there but recently converted. Evangelists at work in the city. We know there are, during the tribulation, there are many, many evangelists busy. Or perhaps even those who will be believers but are not yet. The point is this. God is saying, just as He did to Lot's family living in Sodom, get out. For the time has come for me to utterly destroy this place. The time is up. There's a second reason for the people to flee. The same reason we should take to heart today. Which is voiced in verse 4. So that you will not participate in her sins. In this is an echo of Paul's counsel to Timothy and his congregation. Remember that Babylon is in the beast's kingdom, the center for worldwide trade. Turn please to 1 Timothy chapter 6. 1 Timothy 6. Let's read verses 9 to 11. But those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evils. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. One more, verse 11. But as for you, O man of God, flee these things, pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, steadfastness, gentleness. That's kind of the punchline. We wanted to get that in. Small point. Although at this time the entire world is being bombarded by the bowls of wrath, so there are few places of safety for anyone, anywhere. The Lord God has reserved much of the seventh bowl, especially for Babylon. Look at chapter 16, verse 17. Then the seventh angel poured out his bowl upon the air, 
And a loud voice came out of the temple from the throne saying, It is done! I imagine that those three words will be much louder at the time. And there were flashes of lightning and sounds and peals of thunder. And there was a great earthquake, such as there had not been since man came to be upon the earth. So great an earthquake was it, and so mighty. Now note here, the great city was split into three parts, and the cities of the nations fell. Babylon the great was remembered before God to give her the cup of the wine of his fierce wrath. So in that passage, the Lord God singles out Babylon and just blows it away. <clears throat> Finally, there's a bit of a jab in her, quote, her sins have piled up as high as heaven, end quote. The word translated piled up or have reached in the King James versions. I could say these at home. Don't bother. I keep, they keep telling me it's not important, so I should listen to them. That word, translated piled up, means to glue or cement together as bricks are laid to form a building wall. Add to that as high as heaven and what comes to mind. We have a, here a clear reference to the building of the Tower of Babel where this all began. They said, come, let us build for ourselves a city and a tower whose top will reach into heaven. And let us make for ourselves a name. Genesis 11.4. How did that work out, guys? Verses 6 to 8. The same voice then goes into detail about why this destruction is merited. And note the repetition here. Pay her back even as she has paid, and give back to her double according to her deeds. In the cup which she has mixed, mix twice as much for her, to the degree that she glorified herself and lived herself and lived sensuously, to the same degree give her torment and mourning. For she says in her heart, I sit as a queen, and I am not a widow, and will never see mourning. For this reason, in one day her plagues will come, pestilence and mourning and famine, and she will be burned up with fire. For the Lord God who judges her is strong. The angel hearkens back to the logic of the Mosaic law that one is to be repaid double. If someone steals from you, they are to repay you twice as much. That has the sense of fullness, completeness. If they just gave back what they stole, they're not paying a penalty for what they've done. Exodus 22.9 For every breach of trust, whether it is for ox, for donkey, for sheep, for clothing, or for any lost thing about which one says, this is it, that's what he took, the case of both parties shall come before the judges. He whom the judges condemn shall pay double to his neighbor. 
And again, just as with Lot's situation, the angel states that that the destruction of Babylon will not be accomplished over time. This won't be a a drawn-out thing, but will be immediate. Here it says one day. Indeed, in a moment we'll see it's one hour. Verses 9 to 19. Look how fast he's going. This is an extended anguish lament with narration by the angel. By those who made their living by dealing with the great city over the loss of their livelihood. It's a great read, which I commend to you, but we need not dissect it verse by verse in class. Walvard summarizes it this way. The time is the second coming of Christ at the end of the great tribulation. The very kings who participated in the wickedness and wealth of Babylon now mourn her passing, symbolized in the burning of the capital city. The lament over the kings over Babylon is most emphatic in the Greek by the repetition of the article, literally, quote, the city the great, Babylon the city the mighty, end quote. It was great in in its extent of power and accomplishment and mighty in the strength of its rule. In spite of its greatness and strength, it nevertheless falls in one hour. That's John Walvoord. Let's read just the first two and the last verses to catch the flavor of it. Verses 9 and 10. And the kings of the earth who committed acts of immorality and lived sensuously with her, will weep and lament over her when they see the smoke of her burning, standing at a distance because of the fear of her torment, saying, Woe, woe, the great city Babylon, the strong city! For in one hour your judgment has come. Now verse 19. And they threw dust on their heads and were crying out, weeping and mourning, saying, Woe, woe, the great city in which all who had ships at sea became rich by her wealth. For in one hour she has been laid waste. The angel narrator then turns away from the earthly carnage of the destruction of Babylon and turns toward heaven, I can imagine, with a big grin on his face. Verse 20, Rejoice over her, O heaven, and you saints and apostles and prophets, because God has pronounced judgment for you, don't miss that, for you against her. He's kept His word. For millennia He has said, it's all right, don't worry. Vengeance is mine. I'll I'll take care of it. Here he's taking care of it. The text doesn't say it explicitly, but one gets the impression, not least from the timing of this, where it's placed in the timeline, almost on top of the return of Christ. In fact, there's so much going on. You might pray for me. I should have added this to the prayer request. We're coming up to Christ's return. There is so much that happens then, drawn from all the prophecies in the Old Testament, drawn from Revelation, drawn from what, what the Apostle Paul writes, and it's, 
I so very much want to focus in on this period and show the sequence. I'll need the Spirit's help for that because it all seems to happen at the same time. Maybe I'll hand out a chart that has just one big lump right there. There it is. That's, that's it. I digress. <clears throat> one gets the impression that the destruction of Babylon here represents the final, conclusive, grand finale, the dramatic dunamois of all God's acts of retribution and vengeance during the last seven years. He has been keeping His Word throughout the tribulation. This is the biggie. We get that impression. This is the punchline. This is the final curtain coming down. It is the scene in all of the older James Bond movies where the villain's cavernous headquarters are dramatically blown to smithereens. We know the end is near. We know the credits will be rolling soon. He'll be kissing the the beautiful woman that he's been having fun with. And we know the bad guy has finally got his comeuppance. And all his wealth and infrastructure, everything he has created is now gone. That's what's going on here with Babylon. But then even as we are reveling with the angel in this wrath poured out against evil, the last paragraph of this chapter, verses 21 to 24, reminds us that all of this is future prophecy. Even in the timeline of the seven-year tribulation, I'm not talking about now, 2023. I'm talking about in the context of the timeline of the seven-year tribulation. This has not yet occurred. It's, the, the imagery has been so strong, so, so juicy, that we get caught up in it. And we, we, we see the, the city being destroyed. And just from the verb tenses coming up in this last passage, it, we're slapped back to reality. And the tale is picked up by a new character, a third angel. Verse 21, I note, notice the verb tenses. Then a strong angel took up a stone like a great millstone and threw it into the sea. So then, so we're after the previous previous visions. Then a strong angel took up a stone like a great millstone and threw it into the sea, saying, So will Babylon, the great city, be thrown down with violence and will not be be found any longer. See, even in the context of the tribulation, not yet. Right away, we're reminded that these angels have just been painting us a vivid picture of what will be. So vivid that we got carried away thinking that Babylon has already been wiped off the map. But no. The angel demonstrates what is yet to happen in the timeline. The great city's demise will be as if it has been thrown into the sea never to be seen again an end times version of Atlantis. Verses 22 and 23a. Here the angel describes all that will never again be seen or heard in that once great city. 
And again, note the repetition. Note what is repeated. And the sound of harpists and musicians and flute players and trumpeters will not be heard in you any longer. And no craftsman of any craft will be found in you any longer. And the sound of a mill will not be heard in you any longer. And the light of a lamp will not shine in you any longer. And the voice of the bridegroom and bride will not be heard in you any longer. In God's Word, when something is repeated, pay attention. When Jerusalem had been plundered and destroyed, such as when Judah was removed to Babylon by Nebuchadnezzar, who then returned to break down the walls and burn the city, even then a remnant remained. The poor were left to live, in, live among the ashes and somehow survive as best they could. And under Ezra and Nehemiah, the people returned and the temple and city were rebuilt. When Jerusalem was razed to the ground by Rome in A.D. 70, a remnant remained and the city was eventually rebuilt. But the destruction of Babylon will not be conducted by mere men. This city will be destroyed by the almighty wrath of a holy God. And it will be no more. Repeated a number of times, any longer. It will no longer exist. Never again. Chapter 18 closes in verses 23b to 24 by listing just three reasons, among far many more, of course, why the Lord God has done this. These three justifications for Babylon, the city being thrown down with violence and not be found any longer, come after a litany of her many sins, followed by a list of all that will no longer exist within her once the city is destroyed. Considering the context, the inference in this first is that these merchants are guilty of offenses against God. For your merchants were the great men of the earth. Now, that doesn't sound so bad. They're great men. That's a good thing. But implied in this is they did not do good things. They were not good. And we see that in a moment. Although kings are mentioned, most of chapter 18 is really about merchants. Not your average shopkeepers. We would call these today titans of industry. Merchants of products in the way that Elon Musk, Jeff Bezos, Bill Gates are merchants of products. These are powerful men, great men. Note, remember, great doesn't necessarily have to mean good, righteous. It just means big. Who have an inordinate influence on culture, commerce, and even politics. Here's the latest. I do have another example, but this one just occurs to me. I just read it this morning. These titans of industry, the picture was of Bill Gates, are saying now that we should, for because of global warming, we should back off on the amount of um, um, when you put somebody to sleep for surgery. Anesthesia. anesthesia. We should back off on the amount of anesthesia we give people. 
Because you see those vapors might escape. Well now when somebody who's worth multiple billions of dollars and will anyone will take their call says something like that, people say, oh well gee, yeah. The article went on to say that that accounts for what was it, point zero one or point one percent of all gases, whereas their private jet accounts for point two. These merchants have bought into the sen- just like the text says, these merchants have bought into the sensuality, immorality of Babylon, dallying with her for their own profit. Here's another example. Note today, every day, huge corporations and vast media empires are bowing to the insidious woke culture, labeling products, creating programs, even Disney, for crying out loud that exalt prurient distortions of human sexuality. Why? One reason. Profit. That's the picture in chapter 18. What are they standing off wailing as the city burns? All of our profits have gone up in smoke. We can't do this anymore. Second, Still speaking to the merchants, the angel states a second justification. They not only did these things, they did them well. It was effective. It worked. Implied disastrously so. The nations were successfully deceived by these merchants. The text says, because all the nations were deceived by your sorcery. The word translated sorcery, I can say this one, pharmakia, from which we have our words pharmacy and pharmaceuticals, combined with eplanethason, which is deceived, it means these merchants are guilty of leading people astray by their administering of drugs or spells. By intellectually, emotionally, or even physically, as it were, drugging the populace, for there, the merchants, greater profit. It also implies, as elsewhere in the New Testament, by means of magic and the occult. Finally, the third one, taking the focus off the merchants and turning to the city itself. The angel and chapter end with verse 24. Babylon in both of her aspects, both religious and commercial, has been responsible for the slaughter of countless millions of God's people. This verse expresses how all that is on her. Essentially personifying the city as a murderer saturated with the blood of her victims. So get the picture. Let's see, I'm thinking of the Patriot. The guy takes after the British soldier who killed members of his family, who destroyed his home. Took his, not slaves, but servants. He has two, two young boys left. And he, his rage, his wrath, God's wrath, it's, it's a picture of God's wrath. He can't stop himself. He just pulverizes this guy. 
kills him about 29 times, and he comes up and he's drenched in blood. That's the picture here. The angel accuses Babylon with, and in her was found the blood of prophets and of saints and of all who have been slain on the earth, which we know is in the millions. It's all on you, Babylon. It's in you. You did it. Let me close by reading the first six verses of chapter 19 which give us a vision of how heaven will celebrate this horrific yet righteous event. Chapter 19, right after this, first six verses. After these things, I heard something like a loud voice of a great multitude in heaven saying, Hallelujah! Salvation and glory and power belong to our God because His judgments are true and righteous. He has judged the great harlot who was corrupting the earth with her immorality. And he has avenged the blood of his bondservants on her. And a second time they said, Hallelujah! Her smoke rises up forever and ever. And the twenty-four elders and the four living creatures fell down and worshipped God who sits on the throne saying, Amen! Hallelujah! And a voice came from the throne saying, Give praise to our God, all you His bondservants, you who fear Him, the small and the great. Then I heard something like the voice of a a great multitude and and like the sound of many waters and, and like the sound of mighty peals of thunder saying, Hallelujah for the Lord our God the Almighty reigns. He has kept his promise. He has done what he said he would do. He's taken vengeance. Our God, with the congregation in heaven, we rejoice. that you are our God, that you are the God, the one God, and that you do indeed reign. Forgive us for those days we forget that that is still true. It is as true now as in that moment right before your Son returns to this earth. At the demise, the destruction of Babylon. You still reign. You are reigning right now over not just our hearts, but this world. You have not forgotten. You you are not surprised by anything that happens. You are God and you reign. So, 
with that congregation, we bow down before you to praise you, to worship you, to thank you for being who you are. And we do this in the name of your Son, even Jesus, the Christ. Amen.